Last Sunday, we worked our way through the lion's share of a prophecy articulated to Daniel by an angel sent from God, setting the stage for the prophecy itself way back in Daniel 10, verse 14. The angel tells this old man, quote, I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people, the Hebrews, in the latter days, adding that the vision refers to many days yet to come. One of the most magnificent aspects of this prophecy is not only the copious amount of specific details that we have provided for us, but the fact that so much of what's being articulated has already been fulfilled in history. In case you missed last Sunday, let me give you just a very quick rundown of the events documented in this chapter, Daniel 11, we've already seen come to fruition. In verse 2, we have the rise of the Persian king Xerxes and his conquests over the Grecian Isles. In verses 3 and 4, we see the rapid ascent of Alexander the Great, followed by an almost equally quick dismantling and dividing of his empire into four separate kingdoms. Of these four kingdoms, verse 5 then centers our attention onto the Seleucids of Syria in the north and the Ptolemies of Egypt in the south. Over the next 30 verses, we have documented for us the significant events that would occur over a course of 150 years as these two kingdoms warred with one another. Ultimately, the reason this prophecy spends so much time describing in so much detail the interactions of these two Grecian kingdoms is that the land of Israel, and therefore the people of God, sat directly between them. Because of their geographic location, year after year after year, the Hebrews would find themselves caught in the crossfire of the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. In the end, the succession of various kings of the north and their interactions with the various kings of the south was designed to kind of set the stage to bring us to a Seleucid king, a king of the north, named Antiochus IV, or Antiochus Epiphanes. First mentioned in verse 21 of Daniel 11, he's described as being a vile person to whom they would not give the honor of royalty. And yet, in almost a contrast to this description, we're then told that he comes in peaceably, and he seizes the kingdom by intrigue or flattery. From verses 21 to 35, this prophecy provides really nothing shy of a dazzling accounting of two different excursions of Antiochus Epiphanes into Egypt. While his first jaunt south proved to be very successful, his second attack ends up being thwarted by the intervention of the powerful Roman navy. The entire ordeal ends up being a total epic embarrassment for Antiochus. Humiliated, hot with rage, we read historically that as he makes his way back north to Syria, this evil man, vile man, decides to take out his frustrations on the Jewish people. Over the course of three days, the armies of this madman slaughter and upwards of 80,000 Hebrews. In addition to this, in verse 31, 
we're provided another description of this abominable act of Antiochus that ended up bringing the temple itself into a place of utter desolation. (laughs) Hence why we call it the abomination of desolation. It's an abominable act that desolates. With Antiochus Epiphanes as our lens, beginning with verse 36, which is where we are this morning, it appears the prophecy now intentionally zooms out. So Antiochus Epiphanes is the lens, but the prophecy zooms out into the future, focusing onto another man, another vile, evil man, who come onto the scene eerily similar to this Seleucid king. You might say in a profound sense, prophetically, Antiochus Epiphanes, this Greek king, foreshadows a future leader we'll come to know biblically as the Antichrist. I don't want to belabor this point, but I do think it's worth explaining why and how we see these two infamous characters, Antiochus Epiphanes and the Antichrist, as being so interconnected. And ultimately, the reason we do this comes back to a sermon given by none other than Jesus. Some 600 years after Daniel records this prophecy, Matthew 24 opens with Jesus looking over the temple and prophesying that that building, as glorious as it was, and Herod's temple was indeed something to behold, that it would be completely destroyed. Now, in response to what would have been clearly a a shocking, controversial statement, we're told that the disciples, they come to him privately, And they asked Jesus, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, because they're sitting presently on the Mount of Olives, when Jesus makes this statement and the disciples ask this question, the interaction that follows, this sermon that Jesus teaches them, designed to answer their questions, it becomes known as the Olivet Discourse. Now, what's so fascinating about this sermon is what Jesus says to them, the disciples, beginning with verse 15. So Matthew 24, verse 15, Jesus says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. Then Jesus cautions. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For there will be great tribulation. Such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, Jesus says, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. When you study the abomination of desolation, as it's presented in the book of Daniel, you will notice that the same verbiage surfaces in three separate places. We have mention of this abomination which causes desolation in Daniel 8. We have it repeated again in Daniel 9. And now we have it here in Daniel 11. There is no question from the context and the particulars of the reference in Daniel 8 and here in 11 that portions 
of the abomination were historically fulfilled by Antiochus Epiphanes in 168 B.C. And yet, in the Olivet Discourse, it's equally undeniable that in 32 A.D., Jesus viewed the abomination spoken of by Daniel the prophet as still being a future event that would be committed, logically, by someone entirely different, not Antiochus Epiphanes. In fact, Jesus takes it all one step further by also pointing to that coming event as being the sign of his second coming and the end of the age. Now, As a student of Scripture, this is where the third mention of the abomination of desolation, recorded for us in Daniel 9, verses 26 and 27, becomes significant. Let me quickly just read you this section. After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Speaking of Titus 70 AD, the end shall be with a flood, a dispersion, until the end of war, desolations are determined. Then he, speaking of the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, so seven years. But in the middle of the week, so at the three and a half year mark, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out. On the desolate. Now, as we've previously discussed, what's being revealed to Daniel in what we call the 70 weeks prophecy, as it relates to this abomination, contextually could not have been fulfilled by Antiochus Epiphanes. And as a result, has to be the event, the future event, that Jesus is referring to. That said, the fact that God, in His providence, intentionally describes this future event recorded in Daniel 9 using the exact same terminology as the abomination referenced in Daniel 8 and here in 11, we understand that the abomination of desolation committed by Antiochus Epiphanes in 168 B.C. intended to illustrate prophetically what this future abomination committed by the Antichrist would look like. As we know, the Antichrist will set up an idol in the temple. The people would be forced into its worship. All legitimate sacrifice and offerings to the God of Israel would cease. An incredible persecution of the Jewish people would commence. And it's because... These two abominations, these two events, are prophetically layered. One in the past, one still in the future. It's then only logical that the men who committed these abominations would be equally similar. This is how we make and then substantiate this prophetic correlation between Antiochus Epiphanes and the Antichrist. Now, one side note. There are some within Christianity who, in an attempt to fit the Bible into their eschatology or their study or beliefs concerning the end times, they'll argue that the Olivet Discourse was actually fulfilled 
when the Roman general Titus destroyed the temple in 70 AD. They'll actually point, point out that the predicate to the disciples' question that spawned the Olivet Discourse centered on Jesus' prophecy of what? That not one stone of the temple would be left upon another. And yet, while it's true that Jesus' prophecy about the temple was indeed fulfilled in 70 AD, because Jesus specifically points to this future abomination of desolation as being an indicator the end of the world was near and his second coming nigh, we have to conclude that what Jesus describes in the Olivet Discourse has to possess a still future fulfillment. In fact, we can definitively say, as a fact of history, that the abomination referenced in Daniel, referenced again by Jesus, did not happen in 70 AD. There is zero historical evidence that Titus, or any other Roman for that matter, desecrated the temple in a similar way as the Antiochus Epiphanes. Now before we move on, with all of these things in mind, there is an interesting implication in holding the position that the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet and referenced by Jesus still possesses, even from our vantage point, a future fulfillment. There's an interesting implication to that position. And it centers on the rebuilding of a Jewish temple. Like today, prophetically, in order for this future world leader, the Antichrist, to commit an abominable act that desolates the Jewish temple, <laughs> you kind of need a Jewish temple, don't you? There isn't one. Well, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem was scrubbed clean by the Romans in 70 A.D., leaving nothing behind but the Western Wall. And, and while over the next thousand years or so, the site... The Temple Mount came to house two different Muslim holy sites. Presently, there are, in Israel, in Jerusalem, right now, a group of Orthodox Jews, very devout, well-connected individuals, who head up an organization called the Temple Institute that are ready to rebuild the temple the very moment they're given the green light. You can visit the Temple Institute uh, anytime you go to the old city. I've been there. It's amazing. From their website, which I've included a link at the bottom of C316.tv, the intention of the Temple Institute, like they make no bones about it. They're, they're pretty clear about it. Let me, let me read you a section. Quote, The major focus of the Institute is its efforts towards the beginning of the actual rebuilding of the Holy Temple. Towards this end, the Institute has begun to restore and construct the sacred vessels for the service of the Holy Temple. They are made according to the exact specifications and have been constructed from the original source material, such as gold, copper, silver, and wood. These are authentic, accurate vessels, not merely replicas or models. All of these items are fit and ready for use in the service of the Holy Temple. Among the many items are musical instruments played by the Levitical choir, the golden crown of the high priest, as well as his garments, and gold and silver vessels used in the incense and sacrificial services. After many years of effort and toil, the Institute has completed 
the three most important and central vessels of the divine service. The seven-branched candelabra, known as the menorah, made of pure gold, the golden incense altar, and the golden table of the showbread. Now, what's really interesting in my study this week of, of the Temple Institute is that, is that these men, they believe that while they are given the green light, the construction project can happen immediately, they estimate, they, they estimate that it would take approximately three to three and a half years to complete the temple construction and make it fully operational. If you take the time uh, to read through the Temple Institute's website, and specifically the writings of their founder, a, a rabbi named Yazril Ariel, you'll come to quickly see something else that's really fascinating. These Orthodox Jews, the reason that they're so determined to build the third temple is that they believe the temple has to be rebuilt in order for their Messiah to appear. As one of the first Israeli soldiers to reach the Temple Mount at the culmination of the Six-Day War, Ariel writes the following. He says, This led to a certain sense of letdown that so many of us experienced. After all, we had arrived at the threshold of the Holy Temple. We were standing at the Western Wall. Where is the Messiah? Through the years, the more I have studied, the more I began to understand that we had only ourselves and our own inaction to hold accountable. God does not intend for us to wait for a day of miracles. We are expected to act. We must accomplish that with which we have been charged, to do all in our power to prepare for the rebuilding of the Holy Temple and the renewal of the divine service. In the passing of time, as I pursued my studies, I discovered that our expectations were simply misplaced. Today there are two, <laughs> and when I say big hurdles, they're gigantic hurdles, to the rebuilding of a third temple. First, Israelis are largely secular and anti-religious. It's one of the consequences of the Holocaust. Like The simple truth is that there is virtually no public support in Israel for the rebuilding of a temple. The second issue, as I earlier referenced, the Temple Mount is currently under Arab control, but is also home of two of the most holy sites in Islam, most notably the Dome of the Rock. You see, before a temple project could begin, those two landmines, public opinion, and what do you do with the Muslim holy sites? They would have to be addressed. Now, knowing that this prophecy is now morphing from a discussion of Antiochus Epiphanes to now the Antichrist. Let's just dive into our text. Daniel 11, verse 36. Then the king shall do according to his will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the god of his fathers nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. Again, how do we know we've transitioned from talking about Antiochus Epiphanes to the Antichrist? The evidence is, is, is right in your face. Look again at verse 37. We read that he shall not regard the God of his fathers. You know, as a plain fact of history, we know 
that Antiochus Epiphanes was a devout polytheist. Case in point, in his desecration of the temple, what does he do? He doesn't go into the temple and declare himself to be God. No, not at all. Instead, he sets up in the holy place a statue of one of the gods of his fathers, Zeus. The top echelons of Greek mythology. Now looking forward to this being the Antichrist, let's unpack for a moment what these verses reveal to us about the man. First we read that he will do according to his own will. Don't overlook that. It's a truth that so many of our leaders and politicians are nothing more than figureheads, empty suits and sometimes pantsuits to do the bidding of others, the people that put them in power. Like So many of the individuals on the world stage are nothing more than marionettes put in place to enact the will of powerful influencers, puppet masters, behind the scenes pulling the strings and writing the talking points. Like we know, and don't be naive, political parties, Activists, super PACs, lobbyists, big corp, Wall Street, the donor class, media barons, shadowy figures, billionaire tycoons, the Bilderberg Group, are really the ones making the decisions that affect our daily lives. Now what will make the Antichrist so unique from the normal, typical politician is that according to our text, he will not be beholden to anyone. He will do according to his will, not the will of others. You see, the Antichrist will not be indebted to or in the pocket of anyone. Now, the question begs, how does a leader achieve control, that type of control, apart from the wishes or at least the stamp of approval of the elites or, or the establishment class? Historically, we have an answer to that. We know that it's often populist movements that rise, when the people revolt against the establishment that ends up empowering these leaders with absolute authority and little accountability. Secondly, we're told the Antichrist will, quote, speak blasphemies against the God of gods. You know, we live in a time where our leaders <laughs> are still, to a degree, compelled to pay a little lip service to Christians. And why do they do this? Well, we make up a substantial voting block. However, by the time the Antichrist comes onto the scene, like he's going to no longer feel the need to play that game or capitulate to religious people. He will, we're told, speak blasphemies openly. Like his contempt for Jesus and his followers won't be shielded or hidden from view. It'll be out in the open. Thirdly, we read the Antichrist will, quote, exalt and magnify himself above every god. You know, aside from being blatantly anti-Christian, this man will view himself, practically speaking, as being a replacement Christ. Like, the Antichrist is not an atheist in the conventional sense. Instead of the masses depending on religion or the state, the Antichrist will establish a system whereby the people must be dependent on him for everything. It's kind of one of those that you can keep your God, that's fine, as long as you exalt Him first and foremost. Fourth, we read how the Antichrist 
shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women. And, and the phraseology here is very interesting. While in other passages, we know this man will rise to prominence in a revived form of the Roman Empire. You see that uh, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. In Daniel chapter 2, the implication is that the Antichrist likely will come out of Europe. But what's interesting about this subtle detail in this passage is that we're told he won't regard the God of his fathers. And that very well might indicate, okay, we can't say for certain, but that while the Antichrist might come out of a revived Roman Empire, while he might be European, ethnically he will be Jewish. If the Antichrist, that holds true, comes out of the Jewish community, it would explain why the Jews would be so eager to accept him as their Messiah. He's an ethnic heritage. Not only is he able to provide Israel peace and security with her neighbors, but he allows them, as part of the peace accord, to rebuild their temple. I mean, they will see him as their savior. Some believe that this phrase, he will not regard the desire of women, to be evidence that the Antichrist will either be homosexual or asexual. Now, in the context of Daniel and his Hebrew audience, I think that conclusion is a bit of an overreach. Like, rooted all the way back in the very first messianic prophecy given to Eve in the garden concerning the seed of the woman the phrase the desire of women was traditionally typically used to describe the longing of all young virgin girls in Israel their, their desire that God, God might choose them to be the mother of the Messiah that was the desire of women to this point in first John Chapter 2, verse 22, we read, He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. That seems to have some application here, doesn't it? If the Antichrist is of Jewish descent, this description of him not regarding the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, probably then indicates he's abandoned his Jewish upbringing. Like he doesn't regard the God of his fathers, nor does he believe in the messianic promises. Lastly, in spite of all of these things, the Antichrist will, quote, prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. In a world that's crumbling around him, this man, we're told, will prosper. He'll prosper. He's going to do just fine and dandy. Literally, he's going to advance, make progress. He'll be successful. You know, when the word prosper ends up being used for the Antichrist, a godless, wicked man, you might want to just reevaluate your belief in the prosperity gospel. Like the idea that monetary blessings and worldly success are the evidence of God's pleasure. The Antichrist will prosper, but he's the Antichrist. Reconcile your theology. Verse 38. But in their place, so the gods that he exalts himself above, the Antichrist shall honor a god of fortress, and a god which his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. 
Thus he shall act against the strongest fortress with a foreign god, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. Now up front, in these two verses, there is quite a bit of debate as to what's being described. A case can be made that in the honoring of a god of fortress, the Antichrist will take power and in turn prosper by accumulating wealth through the sheer force of military might. And to those that pledge to him their allegiance, he'll divide the land for gain, allowing others to rule over many. And while, that's reading, while that reading is entirely possible and likely, what's interesting is this description that this God of fortress was a God his fathers did not know. Well, that lends the impression that potentially something more sinister Maybe at work as well. Like it could be that behind the scenes, out of the view of the public, the Antichrist was really beholden to the power of Satan. And that this reference of dividing the land for gain and letting people rule over could speak of demonic forces also given power in the world. Verse 40. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, the Antichrist and his armies, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. Now back in verse 26, we, we read that the Antichrist would prosper. Now we learn that his prosperity isn't indefinite. It won't last forever. We're told he was allowed to have his way till the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. Again, verse 26. You know, the one thing the Antichrist never sees, is completely oblivious to, is the fact that, well, he's not actually the one in charge. You see, what the passage is telling us is that God is the one that allowed the Antichrist to rise, to prosper, to gain his power. That God would use the Antichrist to accomplish a list of things he determined. In fact, we know from the 70 weeks prophecy that God had set aside seven years to do these things. The Antichrist is really nothing more than a pawn on God's chessboard doing his bidding. Now, with regard to what work God would use these seven years to get done, we know God would use this period of great tribulation to judge the world of its sin, its wickedness and rejection of Jesus. In fact, it's what the phrase back in verse 26, the wrath, is describing. Aside from this, we also know that it would be through the deliberate deception of the Antichrist that through the abomination of desolation, God would open the eyes of the Jewish people to finally see Jesus as their Christ. So this great tribulation, it's God's wrath being poured out on the earth, and it's also the Jewish people coming to see and accept Jesus as their Messiah. This phrase, at the time of the end, it indicates that God's work here is nearing completion and that the Antichrist's reign is about to expire in what is likely a description of the final battle of Armageddon. The first movement against the Antichrist, we're told in our text, comes from the king of the south, working in cahoots with the king of the north. While their attack was like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and many ships, we're told that the Antichrist 
overwhelms them. Now, not to sound like a broken record, but there really isn't a consensus among scholars as to who the king of the south and the king of the north are in reference to in this end time scenario. I, I don't think it's Syria and Egypt. Verse 41 So he, the Antichrist, after dealing with the kings of the south and the north, he shall enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. In this final conflict, the Antichrist will conquer many countries, ultimately entering the the glorious land of Israel, placing it under his control. That said, we're told that Edom, Moab, and the people of of Ammon, Jordan, would escape his hand. It's likely that Jordan ends up being protected because she ends up harboring many Jewish refugees following the abomination of desolation in cities of refuge. A lot of scholars see the rock city of Petra there in Jordan uh, as one of these locations. Verse 42, He shall stretch out his hand, against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape and and that's one of the reasons that I don't think the reference of the north and the south are consistent with the the Grecian time period Egypt would have been the the kingdom of the south but we have Egypt uh, being referenced here not being able to escape we're told that he shall have power over the treasuries of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt also the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels The countries of what we would consider today to be northern Africa will fall at the hands of the Antichrist. Verse 44, But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. This Hebrew word translated for us as great fury describes someone uh, heated, irate, seeing red. This bad news he receives causes him to go blind with rage. We're told, and he shall plant the tents of his palace, so his headquarters, between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet, he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. In order to round out what's being described in these final two verses in Daniel 11, and, and, and when I say round out, they're vague. So we kind of need the, the, the aid of other passages of Scripture to really uh, get our minds around what's happening here. Let me read for you a few related passages. Again, just provide more detail. In Revelation 16, we read, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. Consistent with this, Daniel 11, verse 44 opens, that it's the news from the east and the north, it troubles him. In fact, using the dried riverbed of the Euphrates, a massive army from the east, likely Asia, comes to make war with the Antichrist. Continuing this section of, of Revelation 16, John says, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the, the dragon, that being Satan, the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Initially, the battle of Armageddon will begin as a war 
of the powers on earth for world supremacy. Now jumping ahead to the actual battle of Armageddon recorded for us in Revelation 19, we're told, again John, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God, and the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's you and I. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written. So it's a tattoo. King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw the beast. Now Daniel has set this up. That the Antichrist had placed his tents, the tents of his palace, between the seas between the seas and the most glorious mount. So I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, their armies, they're gathered together. They were going to make war amongst themselves, but now, with Jesus coming, they turn to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Well, the world again gathers to make war with one another. The armies of the east and north coming to challenge the Antichrist. Upon the arrival of Jesus Christ, their collective attention turns to battle him. According to Revelation 14, the slaughter brought about by Jesus ends up being so great, so massive, that the valley of Megiddo, that the blood would rise in that valley to the horse's bridle. Daniel 11 verse 45 tells us that at the end of his run, there would be no one to help the Antichrist. (laughs) I would think not. Again, Revelation 19 records, Then the beast was captured, And with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, Jesus. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. (laughs) We, We have to stop here. But I do want to say that Daniel 12, verse 1 will pick things up directly following this epic battle. It's pretty awesome how the book closes. Now, in closing our study, in a, in a message that spent so much time discussing the Antichrist, okay, I want to come back, just with the time remaining, to the much larger idea of un-Antichrist. We, we talk about the Antichrist, but what about un-Antichrist? You know, it's true this man would be anti-Jesus. Like in much the way that we consider to be anti-something, that he would stand against him. But in the Greek, anti, it, it's a bit different than the way we use it in the English. It means not so much to stand against, but to stand in place of. You know, it's not so much that the Antichrist hates Jesus. He does. Instead, the Antichrist presents himself to the world as an an alternative to Jesus, a replacement savior, an idol, a counterfeit God. Now you might think that accepting a man as your savior or your God sounds kind of far-fetched and outlandish. In truth, 
the world accepting the Antichrist as their Savior will be a very natural progression for most of humanity. Like, in fact, while most are completely oblivious to this reality, many people today are already worshiping at the altar of a myriad of different types of replacement saviors or antichrists. One of my favorite quotes comes from one of my favorite movies. That's the usual suspect. suspects. Verbal Kent, one of two characters played by Kevin Spacey, no spoiler alert, he says to the investigator this, he says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. It's a great quote. And it's true. For so many, their first mistake when it comes to life is that they allow their temporal cares, like what's going on around them, in front of them, in the moment, in this dimension, to blind them, distract them of their eternal reality. And the reason that this is so dangerous is that when it happens, when you lose sight of eternity and get wrapped up in this terrestrial existence, it's then only natural that you'll eventually substitute hell for one that you define. Let me explain what I mean by hell. Like hell, instead of in the eternal context, in the temporal context, hell becomes like the person or thing that you blame for your misery. You know, people, they define hell in all kinds of ways. Some people view poverty or being poor as their hell. Others see being fat as hell, or insignificant, or lonely. In other cases, you'll actually hear people refer to their marriage, or their job, or their living situation as being what? A living hell. You know, logically, once you've defined hell, the source of what's making you miserable, many people are then compelled to search for something or someone to save them. That's only logical. If hell is being poor, a job or career or status becomes a savior. If hell is being fat and all the body issues that arise from that, it's only natural that your savior will become a gym or a workout routine or a diet or a healthy lifestyle. If hell is feeling insignificant, or as if your life has no little to no purpose, what will your Savior be? Well, it'll be a cause to fight for, a hobby to immerse yourself in, a sports team to get behind, a scene to join. In some instances, it'll even be an educational pursuit. That's why 50-year-olds go back to college. If loneliness is your hell, your Savior will become a, a, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a significant other, a group of friends, in extreme cases, a pet will become a Savior. Again, if hell, if you define your living hell as your marriage, divorce becomes your redeemer. An affair, at a minimum, a good reprieve. If it's a job that's the source of your misery, quitting, your remedy. If it's your living situation, anyone that opens their doors to give you an alternative will be seen as a savior. Oh, you're saving me, brother. Right? 
it stands to reason, saviors logically demand worship. They kind of go hand in hand. They always do. You see, the final step in the progression is that once you've defined hell and pinpointed a Savior, that person or thing will become your Christ, your God, your idol. That person or thing saving you from your misery will occupy the most prominent place in your heart and in your life. They have to. In fact, it's not out of the realm of possibility that all of your time and your energy and your effort and your money end up being given over to the Savior. Because you believe that in making such sacrifices, they'll save you from your hell, your misery. Like What you need to realize this morning is antichrists, anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ, they always fail. And in the end, they bring down any and all who place their trust in them. It's actually the application of our, of our passage. Daniel says, he, this Antichrist, and everyone with him shall come to his end, and no one will help him. Here's why this is the case. Because you misdiagnosed hell, your core problem, the core source of misery, you've in turn misdefined your remedy, which in turn has led you into the worship of a false savior, an antichrist. You know, you will always worship antichrists if you fail to correctly diagnose what your fundamental problem is. Friend, you can pursue all the riches in this world, believing that at some point they will make you happy. But you'll remain empty. You can tone your legs and flatten your abs and still remain insecure. You can party hard to relieve the pain, but every morning you will wake up feeling a greater sense of agony and emptiness. You can give everything to that cause, and still be left believing there has to be something more to your life. While these things are real, in the end, please realize they're nothing more than symptoms of a much deeper ill. I know this will be hard to accept, but it's a truth. And I'm preaching truth. Your problem is you. It's sin. It's a fallenness, a fundamental brokenness within caused by a separation you have with your maker. You have a hole that can't be filled with any temporal things. And until you accept that reality, you will spend your entire life filling your life with little idols powerless to save. But my friend, there is good news. This cancer called sin, the separation with God that you sense, the internal struggles killing you slowly, <laughs> they are the very things that Jesus is not just able, but came to save you from. 
He's not a, a replacement Savior. He's the Savior, the real McCoy. I encourage you, accept the problem. Acknowledge the problem. But beyond that, look to your Savior. In Luke 19, we read that today, salvation has come to this house. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for this section of Daniel. 